folks, and welcome to Christ in Every Word, a podcast of the Concordia Bible Institute housed on the beautiful campus of Concordia University, Wisconsin. This is your opportunity to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the sacred scriptures with me, Dr. Brian German, Associate Professor of Theology here at the University and the Director of the Concordia Bible Institute. We're making our way through the book of Genesis, Christianity in Genesis. That might sound anachronistic, like we're superimposing something later on something earlier. Not the case, though. If these are they which testify of me, Jesus says, then these scriptures, even the Genesis, the old uh, old school books of Moses, have something to say about him. And not only that, actually define the life of those in him. Christians, those who live and move and have their being in Christ, their head. And that is uh, why we study these texts. These texts are actually constitutive of the life that we have in Christ. And so where do we see that? Where do we see his church in these texts? Not just a bunch of ancient Near Eastern narratives, but these are sacred scriptural texts with an enduring word that will press forward until the final consummation of all things. Heaven and earth will pass away, but the word will remain forever. So here we go. Genesis 29 is on the docket. We refresh off of Jacob's Ladder. The kiddos love it. The children's books, right? Jacob's Ladder. Jacob, it's, boy, it's like uh, the ministry comes through. The ordination, the ministry, the church. Uh, Jacob has this revelation of angels ascending and descending. This is the place of God. This is the gate of heaven. He makes tithes. He has offering. It's the whole divine service in a way. And it's a theology of worship. We talked about that in the last podcast. Moving along is the next chapter where Jacob moves along. And that is to the people of the east. Chapter 29 begins this way. He went on his journey, came to the land of the people of the east It's a big deal in Genesis, a big direction. The Garden of Eden is placed in the east. Uh, People from the east migrated in to create the Tower of Babel. East is, even later in the Bible, enemies of Israel come from the east. I guess, um, on the one hand, salvation, the sun rises in the east, salvation. East is the direction of salvation. The Garden of Eden is in the east. The wind that blows the the locusts through, you know, the plagues and stuff. Deliverance will come from the east. At the same time, you got enemies coming from the east. Um, there are a couple things then that go on. One is that uh, to be to go to the east to be kicked out of the promised land, as it were. This is kind of an anti-Abraham movement here. This is the life of the church. Speaking of Christianity in Genesis. The exiles, Abe finally goes, he comes kind of, in a way, Abe comes from the east, goes west to the promised land, southwest, I guess, in some ways, and yet uh, immediately he's kicked out down to Egypt, and we saw that pattern with Isaac as well, and now we're seeing it here with Jacob, son, grandson, they're all getting kicked out of the promised land which is exactly what the life of the Christian is like. We are strangers here. Heaven is our home. We're on a pilgrimage throughout the wilderness of this life, longing for that heavenly city, the city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem. 
And so here we see this also with Jacob. The pattern continues. This book of Genesis drills at home. He's journeying east. He's going to spend his time as a stranger, longing for his citizenship. Um, and yet that is made possible by one who comes from the east to restore that garden and make it even better. New heaven and new earth. A new tree of life in the east coming from one who comes from the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field. Now, this is awesome because a well is, I mean, we've been through this, right? Abraham and Abimelech. Uh, we had Isaac fighting over the wells. Who was I? There was one, I was talking to a good friend of mine who who was out in Montana. The generations, there's this farm out there uh, he visited, and the generations, it's like a fifth-generation farm. The land goes way back um, to the point where there were fights over from farm and uh, between farm and neighboring farm. It was bloody, bloodshed over the land where the boundary was. And uh, the point here, I'll spare you the rest of the details, but the point is that this was a big deal just at a very secular level. The land is a very sentimental thing between two families, two farms uh, next to each other. The well has been a huge deal in Genesis. They're fighting over, shepherds fighting over the well, Abraham and Abimelech, Abe saying, hands off the well. We, we talked about that in chapter 20, chapter 21 a little bit, chapter 26 with Isaac. The well in Genesis, it's like a mark of the church. Hands off. You shake hands um, with the world, you might say, in ways that preserve peace and godly order so that the marks of the church, the things of the church, the word and sacrament of the church can go forward. The Lord's word and sacrament for the sake of the church can go forth. So we pray in the colics that uh, the word may not be bound but have free course and not have all this hostility so that we can do our thing. And that's the kind of thing that surrounds the well in Genesis. That's what we have with Jacob here as well. I love the fact that we're going right to a well. He sees a well in the field. There were flocks of sheep laying beside it, lying beside it. For out of that well, the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. Now, this is kind of interesting, too. So Jacob, his attention goes right to the well, as should ours. Where are the things of the church, the marks of the church, the places of the church, the well of salvation that Isaiah talked about. That's central, even in the pilgrimage of this life. Hey, look, this is the wilderness of a world I talked about earlier. Well, where's the well? Where's the flock? Where's the water? That's central, no matter where we are. We move around in this one state to the next, whatever it is. Where's the well? Where's the shepherd? Where's the sheep? Where's the water? Where's the stone? And we this is kind of interesting, wasn't it? Jacob just had his head on a stone. And he poured oil on that stone. He made it a kind of pillar. This stone which I've set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of course, uh, there was a stone struck. So that water of salvation would come from his side. Christ Jesus, our cornerstone. The living stone upon whom living stones like his brothers and sisters um, are built. Jacob sees there the stone at the well's mouth was large. 
And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. There's a lot of attention on this stone, isn't there? Rolling away the stone sounds familiar. Sounds like resurrection, doesn't it? This, Who's going to be rolling away the stone? And these shepherds are the ones rolling away the stone. There is this like ministerial overtone to this whole passage. We got the well, we have the sheep, we have shepherds, but we have the stone that needs to be rolled away for this water to come forth. We have that in Christ, our cornerstone, rolling away the stone, bringing us the water of salvation from his side, baptism, and so on. Jacob says, my brothers, where do you come from? So it's a kind of thing of origins, I guess. What kind of shepherds are you? We're from Haran. He says, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? This is Rebekah's brother. This is the this is the uncle. This is where Jacob is supposed to go. We know him. He said to them, is it well with him? Is there peace to him, literally? I mean, this is just a fascinating little encounter here of, okay, what kind of shepherds? And you make ties. I mean, in the Missouri Synod, you know, the Lutheran church, kind of a small business. Well, who's your pastor? Oh, well, he's a classmate of my pastor. You know, we make these connections. And so they do this kind of thing first. There's a fellowship that's assumed in the ministry. Do you know Laban? We know him. The, the things kind of check out in this way. There's an orthodoxy here, you might say. It is well, and see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. Now, this is a fascinating little... This is how best to pasture the flock. And uh, Jacob says, you know, it's not time for this. They need to be... It's kind of a misplaced priority here. Um, There needs to be more activity. There needs to be more pasturing. There's a time and place for that. It kind of reminds me of Thessalonians, where people say, we don't have to work or do anything. Well, yeah... The day of the Lord has come, but that doesn't mean we're just going to forsake all of our vocations and so on. There's a time for being watered at the well. Think Sunday morning worship. There's a time to go out to the vacation, vacation, (laughs) vocation, vacation. And they say, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. There's a kind of dialogue here, isn't there, between Jacob and these shepherds. How best to tend the flock. I love that focus. When do you drink from the well? When do you gather the flock? When do they, should they be, uh, when should they pasture? And uh, the shepherds say it depends on this stone being rolled away. Then we water the sheep. So there's something, there's a facet, there's a few different things going on. When is, yeah, the proper time to do things? Well, in the life of the church, we have this kind of rhythm around Sunday morning. This is when we gather. We drink from the well, body and blood and so on. This is the strength and nourish we need for the upcoming week. And yet, then there's the time to have that week to go about our vocations and so on, as we talked about. Here, there's also this, I don't know, this focus on the corporate life of the church All the flocks are gathered together in one flock with one shepherd from one well. And you don't lose sight of that throughout the rhythm of this Sunday morning and throughout the week stuff. In other words, 
there is but one flock at the end of the day. I think. I mean, there's a sense in which both of these things are true, Jacob shepherding and these Laban shepherds shepherding. Um, we are but one flock, even though you're scattered all over the world. Hey, Sunday for us is, you know, Saturday, the previous day, or on the other side of the globe, or whatever the case is. At the end of the day, all of the flock, in some sense, is gathered together. One flock, one Lord, one faith, one well, one baptism, one church that has sheep uh, living in both heaven and earth at the same time. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now, this is just a marriage. This is She's a deaconess. <laughs> this is an ecclesial thing going on here, isn't it? Rachel, the first thing we learn about... Uh, she's with the sheep, and she's a shepherdess. So this is all very much, I mean, we might be getting into turf of marriage and, oh, Rachel and Leah, and which woman does he love, and all of this. This is not your your uh, uh, love story that you're going to find at Barnes & Noble. This is, this is very much a ministerial, a pastoral, I use that in the, the term, uh, shepherding, shepherdful, love that's going to develop here. This is one this is a very ministerial passage with all this language on shepherding and sheep. She was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel the daughter of Laban his mother's brother and the sheep of Laban his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban his mother's brother. Now this is fascinating. <laughs> Remember that stone need to be needed to be rolled away by a host of shepherds, several of them. And yet here he does it himself. It kind of reminds me of John 21 with the fishing miracle. The catch of 153 fish, they can't haul the net in. Sounds kind of familiar to a fishing miracle, doesn't it? And yet then Peter hauls ashore and he, you know, he, after he has an encounter with the risen Lord, he does it himself. Okay, now that is just, I thought all seven of you couldn't do it, or whatever the case. And then six can't do it, and now Peter does it himself. Okay, that's Jacob here. All the shepherds can't do this, and yet when he sees the flock, when he sees Rachel, he sees the flock, his attention is on that flock, then all of a sudden, seemingly miraculous things happen. For the sake of the flock, the pastor, for example, takes bread, blesses it, breaks it. That's Christ's body and blood. That's not. That's well beyond the natural talent and ability of that human servant standing in the stead and by the command of Christ. And yet when that word is attached, when this is being done for the sake of the flock, the Lord's flock, his flock, his things for the sake of them. This amazing thing happens. Jacob rolls this back. It reminds me of Peter. It reminds me of, this is just, yeah, Peter walking on water, I guess, would be another thing in this camp. Eyes fixed on the Lord, nothing will be impossible. Jacob then kisses Rachel and weeps aloud. It's kind of fascinating. Why does he weep? I mean, it's, it, in a way, it's kind of like Jesus at Lazarus's tomb. Is he crying because of the death? Is he crying because of sin and its effects? Is he crying because that's his friend? Is he crying because of their unbelief? Is he crying, you know, because 
they didn't have the patience to wait just 10, I mean, only 10 more minutes, five more minutes, right? He knows what he's going to do. What kind of tears are these? In some ways, it's all of the above. I think that's same with J- with Jacob as well. He's crying because he's in exile, and that hurts. He's crying because the Lord is with him, as promised in the previous chapter. I will be with you. And now he does this thing that's way beyond him. The flock hears the word, res- repents. The church is built up throughout no merit or worthiness of the human individual standing in the stead and by the command of our Lord. He weeps and he kisses Rachel. So much to be said here about this kissing because we're going to enter it. We've had so many, the brother thing, two brothers, two churches, true church falsehood. But now we're about to get um, two wives, (laughs) To, uh, let's say the true wife, false wife, true church, false church as seen through two women. Lots more to say about that, but we're overdue for a break. We'll be right back. We'll be back in just a moment to the Concordia Bible Institute podcast. In the meantime, I'd like to have you consider this question. What is most important in higher education? How do you prioritize all the knowledge to be gained at an institution of higher learning? Concordia University, Wisconsin, located on the shores of Lake Michigan in Mequon, Wisconsin, just north of Milwaukee, is an institution that is committed to excellence in learning, but at the same time realizes that excellence in itself is insufficient without development in vocation. We believe that God works through our vocations, our callings, in order to serve the needs of those around us. The mission statement of Concordia University puts it this way, Concordia University, Wisconsin, is a Lutheran higher education community committed to helping students develop in mind, body, and spirit for service to Christ in the church and the world. You can learn more about the over 70 programs offered at Concordia by visiting the website, www.cuw.edu. And if you're benefiting from our Christ in Every Word podcasts, I encourage you to support this ministry by mentioning it to others and by offering your monetary support. Please consider supporting the Concordia Bible Institute by going to our website, www.concordiabible.org and clicking on the contribute page. And now, back to the podcast. Alrighty there, folks. We are back with our study of Genesis chapter 29. I was just thinking about this at the break how much this kind of echoes resurrection texts in the New Testament. Maybe there's more to be said here, and I'm not a New Testament scholar, and so I don't dig into these things as much as I should maybe. But John, again, John 20, you have the stone that needs to be rolled away. We talked about that. We have the weeping. Of course, Mary is weeping at the tomb, and um, she clings to our Lord's feet. In verse 12 of 29, Jacob tells Rachel that he was her father's kinsman. There's a lot of talk on brother. In in Hebrew, there's a play on the word brother throughout this passage. It uses the word brother ah, all over the place. And I think that's emphasizing the kind of brotherhood that they have. It's deeper uh, brotherhood. The brotherhood that exists is deeper than what's just at the familial earthly level here. The, the brotherhood that stems from what Jacob is about to have with Rachel. 
creates a brotherhood that's deeper than just familial ties. I'll say more about that maybe as we go along. But there's also the running, just on these resurrection parallels. As soon as Jacob tells Rachel he's her father's kinsman and uh, that he was Rebecca's son, she runs and told her father. And then Laban hears it, and what does he do? He runs to meet him, embraces him, kisses him, brought him to his house. I think, I mean, you have the running in John 20, the resurrection text. Peter's running. John's running to the tomb when they hear that. Mary is running to the tomb. When she hears it running to get the disciples and then, you know, so there's a lot of running going on. This is very much resurrection. It's just straight out of the the Gospels, these resurrection echoes here. But also, and this is kind of also in the resurrection text also, boy, I didn't think I was going to get into all this, but I can't avoid it. And that is in the resurrection stuff, you also have a marriage taking place. Um, woman, why are you weeping? Um, the woman is the church, and by this resurrection, Jesus marries his bride. He gives life to his bride from the cross, from his side, like Adam and Eve. Um, life to his bride from the side. His side is pierced, water and blood. That's the life that he gives to his bride, even today. And that happens in the gardens. Of course, he's married in, he's buried, married and buried in a garden. His tomb is in a garden, John makes clear. No one has ever been there. He rises in this tomb from the garden. There's a new uh, Eden, a new Adam, a new marriage. A second Eve, a second Mary, a second bride. And so there's also marriage talk here. And this, we're going to get this, of course, with Rachel, but also just um, the other echoes here that we'll see, the kissing this happens, I think the point is, so what Jacob kissed Rachel, but now we have Laban running out here, again, the resurrection word, embracing him and kissing him and brought him into the house. I think the point while we're getting all this, I mean, the kissing, shouldn't that be, well, that should be just between Jacob and Rachel. And yet now you have this through between two men. And I think the point is that there is a marriage. It's to emphasize the marriage right after, right after this, what happens Brings him into the house. Jacob told Laban all these things. Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. Sound familiar? This is Eden. Flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. You are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. The point is that God's people enter into a marriage with him. They are united as brothers. Again, the language of brother throughout this account. It's kind of, I mean, it's just, it's all over the place, this language of brotherhood. Um, it's repetitive, overly repetitive. The liberal scholars, oh, that's too much, and, you know, whatever. The point is that there's a brotherhood. We're entering into a marriage. God's people are in the same marriage together as bride of his son, Christ Jesus, who came to Mary's bride, again, from the cross and tomb. That marriage exists, and this between God and his people, and we are all in that. And so I think that's why the language is kind of odd, isn't it? Well, the kissing should be between the Jacob and Rachel. And here it is between the guys, and he says, bone and bone of flesh and flesh. That sounds like marriage. Wait, Laban, you know, Laban, Jacob, why is he saying that to Jacob? The point is that they're in this marriage together, then this, this one flesh union, participating in it with each other. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what shall your wages be. Now, this is fascinating, isn't it? Laban, uh, when it comes to the bride, 
the marriage. Which kind of woman are you after? Lady wisdom or lady folly in Proverbs? Um, the wife of the lamb or the harlot in Babylon in Revelation? Okay. Here it's going to be between Rachel and Leah. Laban thinks there's going to be some cash involved. Two daughters. What is your, what's your wages? Surely you're going to get something in return for your service. Okay, Laban has two daughters. Older is Leah, younger is Rachel. Leah's eyes are weak. Rachel was beautiful. Jacob loves Rachel. He says, I'll serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served him seven years for Rachel, and they seemed him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Okay, a few things. First things first. Laban ties this to money. That's the word he uses, wages. But Jacob is not interested in cash. He's interested in marriage, which is like lesson number one, I guess you could say, and that is not gold or silver, but holy precious blood. That's the kind of marriage that we as Christians should be after all the time. Are we doing what we're doing? What kind of service, what kind of reward do you want for your service? Well, at the end of the day, we are but humble, unworthy servants. So what we want is to be in that marriage, to be in that, to be that bride, to have that bride. We're not in it for the money. We're in it to serve that bride, to serve the, head, the bridegroom of that bride. And you see that reflected in Jacob. He wants Rachel. Okay, I'll serve you seven years. Now, seven years is that good seven, you know, that next thing to say here. He'll do what he has to do. The service is complete and whole and satisfactory. It is the full gig. Seven years is a kind of representative of the full, perfect, complete time of our Lord's appointed service that he has in store for us. That's what we'll do for the sake of this bride. That's why we're here doing what we do, not for the money, but for the sake of this bride. Laban says, I should recognize this marriage, so stay with me, serve seven years, and they're but a few days. Now, that's, a, that's again, straight out of the Gospels. Um, a little while. And you will see me know a little while when a woman is giving birth, right? Oh, the agony. And at the same time, oh, the joy is here. It was just a little while, but a few days. All of heaven and earth passing away. All of mankind but a mere breath. Just a few years. That's all we get. It'll go by quickly. But the bride is the important thing. Jacob says to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go to her, into her, for my time is completed. Now this is the kind of boldness of faith saying, This is the deal. You promise and this is what I'm holding you to. Laban gathers all the people. He makes a feast. But in the evening he, tooks, he takes his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And he went into her. Now, many questions, of, I guess, arise here. How did he not know and all these things? I think the, the, the main thing to think about here is how this evokes earlier moments where somebody's asleep in Genesis and things happen. And that is Adam's asleep and he gets his bride 
without any merit or worthiness on his part. That's the bride that our Lord has in store for him. Noah gets drunk. He's asleep, and we kind of know how that goes, something shameful. Okay, here, I mean, some have thought, and this is the kind of an old-school, ancient interpretation. That is, um, Jacob is actually drunk. He made a feast. What kind of feast? Well, that word feast comes from the, it stems from a word that involves drinking. So is he also, and in that case, is is this the kind of drunkenness of humanity? Is this the, we talked about this with Noah and so on. This is what we lead to when left to our own devices, um, the kind of self-destruction here. Hey, I'm going to depend on my own service. Okay, I'm going to depend on my own good works. And what happens? Self-destruction. We end up becoming slaves. Again, think service to ourselves and our passions and so on. Jacob's upset about this, just as Noah was. He's been deceived. Sound familiar? (laughs) Already in this life, Jacob is getting a taste of what he deserved, right? Or what he gave it, what he dished out. Um... You you just did this, Jacob, to your own father. Esau, is that you? Jacob says, yep, here I am. Right? And now there is in our Lord Alex Talionis, eye for an eye. And you you get an image of that here. You get a little, okay, this is what happens. This is a little taste of a much worse judgment that could happen apart from great Jacob's greater son. Laban says it's not done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Doesn't this sound familiar, right? It's not Jacob's the same situation. He was the younger. It's not supposed to be your birthright, Jacob. And so all this is bringing to mind the grace and mercy that Jacob has been given in the first place. It's not about your service, Jacob. It's not about what you're bringing to the marriage. In fact, when left to our own devices, we're as as down and out as Noah passed out like Jacob and so on. So Laban says, serve another seven. You know how this goes. And he did it. And that's exactly the extra mile. That's exactly that you should be willing to serve 77 miles, right? Not seven, but 77 miles if asked of you for the sake of this bride. And that's the charge to the church of all times and places. And Jacob does so, and then eventually, as you see there in verse 30, he goes into Rachel, loves Rachel, um, and that's the marriage that we're after. This is the sort of thing that continues to be a factor in the life of the church. What's our attitude toward this true bride, the one that, that we love, the one that our Lord first loved in order that we can love one another within this, within this bride? The Lord then has mercy on the unloved, and that is Leah, opens her womb. This is just the cross that the the chosen have to bear. We've seen this barrenness before and how it points to the to the the miraculous conception of our Lord. Leah conceives and she has all these kids, right? There are four of them here. Reuben and Simeon and Levi and Judah. And then after that, she ceases bearing. Now, this is a fascinating. Levi, of course, the priesthood. Judah, 
boy, the kingship. Even though Leah is unchosen, unloved, through her we get the priesthood, the kingship, king and priest. This is exactly how Genesis works. As soon as there's some special chosen elected brother, our Lord immediately works for the sake of the unchosen to graft in a kingdom of priests from every tribe, nation, and language through his high priest, who is king of kings and lord of lords, that God may be all in all. And that's the fascinating thing about how this chapter ends, the picture that we give of that grand story of the Christian faith. Lots to say there, but we're going to have to call it. We're over time. Thanks for listening. Spread the word to others so that they too can... Learn more about God and the salvation we have in his son, Jesus. The mission of the Concordia Bible Institute is to provide Christ-centered Bible instruction from distinguished experts who teach Christ in every word of the Old and New Testaments to strengthen faith and spread belief in the one true God. Again, if you benefit from this podcast series, I encourage you to consider supporting the Bible Institute by going to our website, www.concordiabible.org, and clicking on our Contribute page. Until next time, my friends, I'm Dr. Brian German, wishing you all God's blessings in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you.